Hello everyone and welcome to session three of the Enneagram for Awakening with Russ Hudson titled An Overview of the Three Instinctual Drives or Subtypes. This is your host, Carol Ann at the Shift Network. Before we get started, let me share a few quick announcements. If at any time you have technical issues or questions during a call on Maestro, you can press 5 on your phone or web phone keypad and someone will assist you. If you experience any issues with sound or not being able to hear while connected over Maestro, please hang up and call back in. For those of you listening in via the audio webcast, you can call into Maestro Conference just before the breakouts begin if you'd like to join a breakout group. You can find your access number and PIN listed on your course homepage. If the webcast button in today's session on the course homepage is not working for you, there's also a button at the top left that says Join the Next Webcast. Clicking that button will connect you. And if you have any technical questions while using the webcast, please type them directly into the message box and be sure to include your email address so we can reply by email. Also, please note that there is no class next Thursday, March 31st. We'll resume our classes on April 7th. Great. I think that completes our announcements for today. So now, please join me in welcoming Russ to the call. Russ, welcome. Please take it away. Well, thank you so much, Carol Ann. Um, and hi, everyone, um, wherever you may be. Um, it's, a, yes, our third session, our third module. And we're turning today toward a topic that I think is really interesting and energizing and exciting for a lot of people who have gotten into the Enneagram in any particular way. And that is uh, the topic of the instincts or the drives or the subtypes. They're called different things in, from uh, different sources, different uh, schools of thought. And... Um, so with uh, a lot of respect for the different things that people have presented about this and different viewpoints about it, of course I'm going to give you mine today, which I hope you'll find uh, helpful. I've been uh, working on this topic for a long, long time, uh, going way back to the early 90s. Um, so um, before we get into all of that, I want to have us... Um, center ourselves and uh, have a presencing practice. I find it uh, really wonderful that uh, even though we're connecting through electronic media of various kinds, there's a certain way we can feel the connection with each other as we turn our attention toward presence. There's a way that we're helping each other even though we're not right next to each other spatially. But you can almost feel the way that as a, a group of us turns our attention toward the moment, it's easier. It supports us somehow. So as we've already been doing, I invite us first to just take a few breaths a little bit deeper than our habit. 
You don't have to be exaggerated. Just really breathing, not the kind of shallow breath of our personality patterns. But to really take this luxurious moment of existence to feel ourselves here through this amazing breath. And as we're doing that, to be aware again of sensation. Sensation of the body is a wonderful help to zeroing in on a more precise way of being present in the here and now. Now, before we get into thinking about these instincts, I thought it would be really nice to feel them. And they can be used to support a meditation practice. Because there's many kinds of sensation, and each one of them can help us drop in more deeply to really inhabit our body to be in our belly, as we say. The first is the category of self-preservation. Right now, as I'm sitting or standing or wherever I may be, maybe I'm laying on a, a bed or some other surface or I'm sitting, I can tune in to the way the body is telling me how the body is doing. My body right now has a certain temperature. It's it's warm. And some parts might be warmer than others. But also I can feel if I am well rested or a little bit tired. That's a sensation. If I'm hungry or my stomach is full, That's a sensation. If I'm thirsty or well hydrated or usually somewhere in between, I can feel that. If I'm uh, stressed or kind of worn out, I can feel that too. And notice how the very paying attention to the body this way helps the body relax. I've thought it's like the body saying, whoa, thank you, finally you're paying attention. It can be this listening and awareness to how we're doing, what we need, what we don't need. And our body's sending constant signals about this. If I ate something that was yummy but didn't quite agree with me, I can feel that. So just take a moment and just, if you will, take in what what are the conditions and qualities of your body? How are you in your sense of well-being? What, if anything, is your body telling you it, it needs? may also on this level just notice ways you've been holding tensions in your body 
the musculature, how you're holding your posture, your breath, and so forth. It's very direct feedback. You could spend the rest of your life really tuning into more skillfully to learning what the body needs and how it's seeking to uh, maintain itself. Very direct. It's a zero abstract experience. As we feel that and feel more established in that, let's notice another quality of sensation that might be familiar or not. Can I notice a quality of kind of a tingly sensation, almost like an electrical feeling, a tingling in the nervous system? Oftentimes, we might notice this initially in our extremities, in our feet or our hands. But can, if you pay attention to it, it, it deepens and spreads. It's almost like noticing the battery charge of my organism. It might be a big charge, and maybe it's a lot of energy, and it's making me want to move or wiggle around or it might be low you know but I don't know it's different than noticing the sensations of well-being and what the body needs this is uh, more as I said electrical sensation and it shifts as I'm aware of the sensation it shifts my sense of being here in the space I'm in kind of an activating quality. Flipping a switch and turning on my nervous system more explicitly. And how does that affect my breathing? My sense of being here. Can I see how this is quite distinct from tuning into the body's needs and how it's doing. They're both here, but they're different. Again, a body intelligence, a body awareness. And then the third element of this if I can feel how the body's doing and notice this charge, like the battery charge of my consciousness, my nervous system, there's the sense of how I'm related to what's around me. So are there other people around? Or maybe pets or other creatures? How does it affect me that there are people or other beings around or that there aren't? Can I feel in my body the relatedness with what's around me, whether I'm alone or with someone? Like there's a way that if I pay attention 
to where I usually would think the boundaries of me are. Like if I tune into where I think my skin is, where I believe I end as sensation, and just tune into that, you may notice that I don't feel a wall there. It's not like a cutoff. More likely, I'm feeling a lot of movement, like moving energy. More like an interface, like the way my insides are interfaced with the outside. Like a complex interface system. I'm being affected by what's around me. The people around me. The space around me. And I, here, am affecting what's around me by my presence. My presence is affecting the space. Maybe affecting the other people or beings around me. I notice here also how open and available I feel. Or how closed or uh, not so available this moment I feel right now. Probably it's, it's not all one or the other, but somewhere in a continuum. You know, sometimes flowers open and sometimes they close. It's just part of life. Sometimes we're more available and to a relational field, and sometimes we're more closed. But we can feel that in the body. So can you notice that it's possible, if we're very relaxed, present, and free of our identification with the various patterns that arise in our mind and feelings, it's possible to be aware of our body and how it's doing now. To be aware of the charge, the energy, the kind of shakti quality, the nervous system. And it's possible to be aware of how we're participating in part of a relational field that we're affecting what's around us and being affected by what's around us. And if we, to the degree that we're aware of all of these, we can be pretty sure that we're more present in the body, probably feeling more relaxed and balanced than we often do. Take a moment to take in the impression of that. Be very powerful. And uh, as we finish, just to, can be nice to do a little uh, bow of thanks, <laughs> a little gesture of thank you. Uh, to our to the presence within us around us and 
we can look now at this material from a place of more groundedness and balance. I hope it will facilitate our learning. But I also think it's really interesting. I see people in the Enneagram field getting very caught up in various intellectual disputes or debates about how this all works. And one suggestion I have is that you can come back to these kind of very direct experiences, which is what this material was originally designed to help us come to. And you can make discernments and discriminations from here that aren't coming from a distance, if if you see what I mean. So as we get into this material, one of the other uh, themes I want to bring in is that all of these instincts, which I hope you could feel when we were just presencing them, are really, we could think of them as the intelligence of nature in us, as nature's great endowment, uh, the qualities of intelligence that are needed for human beings to live and thrive and operate on planet Earth. It's really part of the intelligence of planet Earth. And it's also very important to realize that all three of these instincts are operational in us. We're not missing anything. We have certain habits vis-a-vis each of these instincts, and we're going to be exploring that a lot in the next few uh, sessions. It's an Im- very helpful and powerful to see our habits in relation to them. But whether or not we're aware of them, these instincts are operating. So while you know we're going to explore the fact that human beings with ego patterns, meaning you and me and everybody we know, tend to unconsciously prioritize these instincts. We tend to pay more attention to some of them than others. There's some we're kind of, in a way, over-determining, and some that fairly well drop out of our attention a lot of the time. That doesn't mean they're gone. And it doesn't mean they're, even if there's one that we're not particularly paying attention to, it doesn't mean we're clueless or that we have no awareness of it. It's just not quite a balanced situation. And so I want to propose at the beginning of this whole section that while, yeah, you can say um, in a way that uh, there's one of them that is predominant in my experience or one that I maybe overplay in certain respects, it's also true that from the point of view of inner work, we'll get a lot more bang for the buck in exploring intimately our relationship with each one of them and get very specific about that. Even if, let's say, two of us are both dominant in self-preservation, for example, it doesn't mean that we are in the same way or that we're emphasizing the same things. So we'll get into all of this. Um, So I really invite you to shift the question from which one am I to what is my habitual relationship with each of these areas of life and what happens when I'm more present or conscious to that area of life? How does it shift things? How does it open things up? I think you'll get a lot more help in your life by that than you know giving yourself yet another label to walk around with and 
which may or may not be correct. So um, we will uh, we'll explore all this. Another element about these, um, <clears throat> there's a lot of different nomenclature for the instincts. And um, it's it's been popular, and I think the term came originally from Claudio Naranjo, to call these subtypes. And some people speak about them only in relation to the Enneagram types. But coming from the source material of this work, which goes back before Claudio, goes back to uh, Gurdjieff, actually, the, what we're looking at here are the first three centers. The belly center, as we usually call it, is in fact three centers. Um, Gurdjieff uh, taught in uh, the early days when he was bringing this work out that to work on oneself required working with initially five centers, not three, and ultimately seven. The seven, um, the sixth and seventh would be the higher emotional or higher intellectual, which have to do with the virtues and holy ideas and other matters that are uh, advanced topics. But uh, for me, the the belly center is so interesting because it is essentially three centers. And they correspond roughly, uh, not exactly, but in terms of location, more or less like the first three chakras. Some of you might be more familiar with the Indian system of the chakras. But the self-preservation center is located at the the uh, base of the spine and kind of in the, I, I kind of located in the bowl of the hips. Huh? Uh, the, whole, the way the pelvic, um, the pelvic girdle and the pelvic bones create like a bowl, and down there in the bottom of that bowl is this self-pres drive. But uh, the the second instinct, which um, is called various things, Gurdjieff called the second instinct sexual instinct, and Oscar Chazo called it sexual instinct. And uh, I, I understand some people don't prefer that term because they feel that it... Um, confuses it with just the sexual act. Um, but it is, in fact, sexual energy. It is the energy of arousal. Um, it is what um, uh, related to what Wilhelm Reich called orgone. And uh, other traditions work with it in different ways, but the location is pretty unmistakable. It is in the area of our, our gonads, our, our reproductive system. And when uh, we're looking at that, m some people call this instinct one-on-one um, -on -one or intimacy. Well, w we're going to get into this as we go deeper into it, uh, into the course, and as I look uh, in a couple modules away at this instinct specifically. But one-on-one uh, -on -one is kind of sort of true uh, if you understand it in the right context. There's a certain focus this energy produces in people. But it does not mean wanting a partnership versus being interested in a group as a distinction from social instinct. For me, that's, a, that's an error. Um, and I'll explain as I get deeper into all of this. But also, it, when we talk about it that way, and certainly if we throw in the term intimacy or intimate, we're conflating this energy 
this gonadic energy from the base of our body with heart energy. Like most people want some kind of partnership. Most people want a one-on-one relationship. Most people want to feel close to someone. But that's different than what this, frankly, sexual energy is, this activation energy. I've sometimes called it also attraction instinct uh, to sort of get around you know, people's jitters about using the word sexual. And that would be more accurate, the energy of attraction. I think people can you kind of can feel that in your body as you 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 weigh the word attraction. Um, intimacy is absolutely a, an issue of the heart. So, if the reason this becomes important is because that tingly electrical sexual energy that arises out of the gonads and pervades the body ends up being very important for inner work. And if we confuse that with romance or intimacy, we've gutted one of the core teachings um, of inner work. Uh, it's an easy distinction to make. It's just not useful from the point of view of working with these elements as energies. I hope that's clear. And I hope also that you could feel the difference between the self-pres, the grounding sense of self-pres from this kind of activating energy of the, the sexual instinct or the attraction instinct. And the, that, again, the gonads. The third is the uh, social instinct. Uh, I've also called it the adaptation instinct, and I was pleased to find out that Claudio Naranjo also calls it sometimes the uh, adaptation instinct. Uh, this one is located uh, closer to the solar plexus. It's higher up. And it functions in an odd way as a sort of a bridge between the instinctual life, uh, the, the function of body and its drives, with what we call our emotions. In fact, a lot of the primal emotions that people experience are kind of a combination of instinct and heart. But uh, we're, here we find the, the drive to bond, to connect to be aware of the other. Uh, It's the oxytocin uh, part of us. And the origin of it, uh, which I'll speak more about, has more to do with the necessity of parenting. Uh, I'll I'll say more about this. Uh, But I want you to be aware that these, these, I I call these instincts or drives, uh, my friend and colleague David Daniel likes to call them the drives, and I, I see his reasoning for that. Uh, I I don't prefer the term subtypes because it makes them seem like somehow subservient or less than the Enneagram types. And I don't find that to be true. I find them to be equally important, uh, very significant for our psychological life. And in some matters, for example, uh, in relationships, they're actually more important than the Enneagram type. And my assertion is that we can study the instincts independently of the Enneagram type. Yes, in most people, in personality and ego, we'll see the two conflated in very particular ways. But I think in order to understand what the healthy expression of the instincts is like, we need to understand them independently of how type essentially interferes with them. And we can get a clearer sense of them if we know what they're for. Um, So I want to say a little bit about that. Um, 
everybody with me so far? <laughs> this is such an interesting area to explore. I, I love um, pondering this part of it. It's so practical and useful and really shows us the edges of our development uh, in a very explicit way. Um, so we could look at them also from the point of view of biology and the development of life on the planet. Um, Self-preservation was the first to develop and pretty much, well, I won't say pretty much, look, everything that lives has self-preservation in it. Whether we're talking about very complex organisms like you and me or dolphins or, um, you know, our family pet, right? All all living things have this self-preservation drive. We, we strive to stay alive, to find food, to avoid danger, to get shelter when we need it. Uh, and we want to have survival. And if we can get basic survival taken care of, we, we look at sort of optimizing our energy, having well-being, relaxation, um, and so forth. And all living things have this, even bacteria, you know, have, have a self-preservation drive. Even unicellular animals um, will move toward conditions that optimize their well-being. Uh, they don't even have brains, but even an amoeba knows how to swim into an area that best supports its, its homeostasis. So um, that's pretty basic and awe-inspiring if you think about it. And in human beings, this drive to uh, to survive and to have well-being and comfort, if we can, uh, is pretty basic. Um, you could even go so far as to say that the other two drives or instincts are extensions or elaborations of self-preservation. But um, I don't think it's too hard to see the ubiquitous nature of self-preservation. Even if we don't consider it as a dominant area for us, it's still pretty important. Uh, and we'll talk uh, as we do uh, after this particular session where I'm doing an overview. Uh, in the next sessions, again, we're skipping next week, but after that, we're going to take a session for each one of these to really go into them in depth and understand uh, some how they operate in us. Uh, and I'll teach you about three zones in each of the instincts that really helps us find out what are the areas of that instinct that we've cultivated or developed and what areas are more difficult for us or haven't been developed in the same way. Um, in human beings, self-preservation has to do with all the same things it does in other creatures, but it also translates into our sense of practicality, our sense of money, things like that, which again we'll, we'll talk about more extensively. Um, also, there's the, the big challenge in self-pres vis-a-vis presencing it is learning to discriminate the difference between comfort and well-being. Because as we'll see, what develops us is seldom comfortable. And if we create a life only around comfort, we, we more or less stop developing and actually can be really bad for our health and well-being. So there's a... But yet the ego 
reads well-being as comfort. So there's discrimination there that we can make. Um, so that was the first to develop. And as we say, all creatures have it. They, all creatures find food. They all find uh, ways to avoid getting eaten or being harmed. or They survive the best they can. The simplest animals do that. Even plants do that. So the next instinct uh, to develop was the sexual or attraction instinct. And this, uh, according to life scientists, developed much later as organisms began to be multicellular, they, it introduced the whole element of variety and genetic variability. And sexual reproduction became a way of putting uh, new combinations together. Uh, and so if you think about it, it's very interesting. Attraction is coming not from our individual mind, but out of the very force of nature. Just like the impulse to keep ourselves alive and healthy comes out of something deeper in nature, so does sexual attraction. And I want to sort of suggest here that when we look at the animal kingdom, it this instinct arises usually in particular times. There are mating seasons for animals. And, this, and the more developed the sexual instinct, the more complex the processes are around that. But when animals are in that mating season, they're not interested in comfort. They're not laid back. They're not mellow. We've watched those nature shows. They're very activated. They're competitive. They can even be aggressive. They're competing for mating and rights to mate. And they're displaying their... You know, birds are showing off their plumage and creatures are doing dances or they're making sounds. They're attracting and being attracted. Now, interesting thing about human beings is we are like that all the time. <laughs> we don't have a mating season. Our, our instinctual self in this regard, our, our attraction instinct, stays on um, most of the time. But it's also good to notice, and I, I just want to say this, that in human beings, in cultural societies, the attraction energy isn't only about mating. In fact, if you think about it, most of the people that we're attracted to and even situations or circumstances where we feel attracted or drawn to have not a lot to do with, with the actual sexual act. Sometimes, yeah, it's the same energy, but most of the time it's not about that. We're attracted to people, you know, hundreds of times a day, maybe more. And there's other people that we don't feel attracted to. It's not a, a thought. It's not a feeling. It's not a, a concept. It's an energy in the body. Um, and so... Some of us are more tuned into that level. Some of us have learned how to trust certain kinds of attraction. But again, as the personality gets mixed up with this, as we'll see, we can also get attracted to a lot of things that aren't so good for us. And that's a pretty common element too. Uh, but you can feel the difference between, again, the, the being safe, comfortable, uh, taking care of needs of the self-pres, and this other energy that kind of draws us out of the comfort zone to go seek out what we're attracted to or to draw to us what we want attracted to us. So 
So it's a it's a very particular kind of energy. And again, I hope you can feel the difference between that and intimacy. As I've said many times, we we can have the experience of intimacy with someone with zero attraction, zero you know sexual energy, and we can have a lot of attraction, sexual energy, and there's no intimacy. Just to, to really express that these are very different things. And everybody has this as part of them, but some people are more explicitly aware of this and of this part, and some it's more um, in the background, more hidden, you could say. Um, yeah, and again, when we're conscious of self-pres, we tend to take good care of ourselves. When we're not so conscious, our fears about survival can lead us to do weird things that aren't so good for us. Like we may overeat because we're afraid, uh, we, we feel empty and so we're eating all the time. Or we might, uh, on the contrary, develop an eating disorder because we're worried about food. Or we might work ourselves to death because we don't think we have enough money. Fears about self-pres are not self-pres. And the same thing here with the sexual instinct. As we're present with it, we tend to be attracted intelligently to what serves us in our greater purpose and draws us out of our old patterns and habits. When we're not so present to it, it tends to keep drawing us back to the same kind of psychological problems, issues, and um, difficulties again and again. We get attracted to things that end up being a repetition because the attractions mixed up with our uh, our narcissistic patterns and our psychological history. So again, we're, what we want to focus in the whole thing is presencing these instincts and discriminating that from our fearful beliefs about them and what they mean about us, what we believe they mean about us. So the third is uh, is social. And I feel this one is the most generally misunderstood in uh, in the general conversations about this that one hears in the Enneagram world. Um, social instinct was the last to develop. And, you know, people, if I, I ask people, what do you see about social instinct? And they'll usually talk about herds or packs of lions or something like that, animals in groups. Well, the groups developed later. That scientists will tell you that wasn't the beginning of the social group. The beginning of the social group was much smaller, and we call it a family. And indeed, the social instinct developed, and there's a lot of scientific literature about this, for the purpose of taking care of babies. When um, animals got more complicated, uh, babies were born, they needed to be cared for or protected, at least for a period of time, before they were viable. So, for example, baby birds, you know, when they're born, they're helpless, so they, they stay in the nest and the birds, the, the mother and father bird, there's very variety in the species, of course, look after them, feed them, protect them, and so forth. That's not self-pres, and it's not sexual. It's The social instinct is your survival is my survival. Our survival is what counts. And the birth of that, as I said, is in parenting. Um, 
you know, when more animals that don't have so much social instinct, more uh, primal creatures are born, you know, baby snakes or baby spiders or baby crabs or baby turtles, you know, they, they're born, they hatch, and they, they're instantly on their own. You know, they, they've got to hustle right away. Baby fish get born and they better swim fast because sometimes the mama or the dad will just eat them. Uh, there isn't a social instinct. As, but the, the whole revolution in social instinct apparently occurred a little bit before the time of the dinosaurs, which is pretty late in the history of uh, the development of life on the planet. But henceforth, animals start to care for the babies. Now, if you look at um, a human infant, you could see we, we pay a high price for this very advanced hardware we got in our skulls. It takes a long time for a human brain and a human organism to get up and running. And so human babies needed a long time of care before they're viable to function as an adult. So in human beings, the social instinct is very strong because we have to really be there for a long time to take care of the little ones. Now, when we do that, we have to adapt. When you're caring for another being's survival, what's comfortable and easy for myself or what's exciting and thrilling for myself or arousing for myself has to get put aside and I have to adapt. I have to adapt to the needs of the other. I'm sure some of you listening to this have had children and I think we could agree that to the degree we were sex successful at, uh, at parenting that we had to make a lot of adaptations. But you can also feel a lot of people when they, they have a child on the way, they're first when they're scared, they don't think they'll be able to do it. And yet, if, if there's not extenuating circumstances, you see that child, something kicks in. This instinct kicks in and suddenly the impulse to care for that being is just there. Now, what was so interesting in human beings is this instinct also developed laterally. That we started to care about our peers, our family members. Our, we started to mate for life. Some people feel that sexual. It, for me, that's social. Bonding is social. Attraction and energy and the, the movement of creative energy is more sexual. But good news is everybody has all three. And they're in some specific relationship within me. Um, when we're not so conscious about social, we have a lot of anxieties and problems about being included or not included, wanted or not wanted, um, part of things, not part of things. And this can also lead us to uh, more aggressively exclude others or be against others to see uh, to get into various us versus them kind of frames of mind uh, or to give up our own sense of truth and awareness to stay identified with with our, our peer group there's all kinds of way it manifests and again presencing the social instinct it becomes this beautiful and exquisite human capacity for being aware of others and aware of others' needs and aware of how to adapt so that we can create some kind of win-win with each other. So um, when we're not 
so present. Well, let me put it the other way. When we are present, our instincts just do their thing, and they do it very well. Uh, we, we take better care of ourselves. We follow what energizes us, which brings us activation and life force and creativity. Uh, we're involved in relationships that bring that life-giving creative energy to us. And we feel vividly alive. And we also uh, take care of each other. We're tuned into each other. It's, we effortly, effortlessly are aware of how we're operating with other people. And the more someone is present in their body, the more these instincts will tend to balance. And the more they balance, the more we can be present in our body. I would suggest that the more balanced we are also, the more we tend to integrate the spiritual breakthroughs that we've had really helps us land with that. I'll say more about that as we go into the course, but I just invite you to notice that when we're more grounded in our instincts in certain ways, what we've learned about our true identity, you might say, is more easily lived more easily becomes part of our day-to-day life. So when we're not so present, our ego patterns and their particular agendas hijack the function of the instincts in particular ways. We learn in the Enneagram about how each type has at its core a passion. Um, Oscar Chazo called them the nine passions and I talked before about how they're related to the early idea of, of the hamartia, the, the way of missing the mark. But really, they're, they're a kind of suffering at the core of the ego, an emotional suffering that creates a, uh, the whole dynamism of our ego and what it's trying to get and what it's trying to avoid. When that passion gets activated it usually plugs into one of these instincts primarily. And that instinct becomes its, its fuel, its, its rocket fuel even. And the, the sort of mix of that agenda, that uh, drive coming out of the ego, and the instinctual energy that involves becomes the core of the personality structure. So when you get the two together, and this was, I think, Claudia Naranjo's big contribution, you really have a core of what is driving our whole ego pattern. Now, there are layers and layers and layers of how that operates. And oftentimes, people will be satisfied with just having some kind of description of themselves that this makes it a little more accurate. But I don't think the Enneagram is for narcissistically mirroring who we think we are. It's not merely to describe us, however precisely it may be able to do so. It's to give us tools to look past our self-concepts and our assumptions at the underpinnings of the mechanisms that are driving our behavior. What appears as choice is revealed as compulsion or impulse many times. And you really get to that in here. It also helps us to see why we habitually neglect important parts of our life, as we'll get into also. But you could say the passion distorts the instinct in a very particular way. And Claudio uh, Naranjo provided uh, some names for the 27 combinations of the nine Enneagram types 
and the uh, three instincts. And some of those I find very helpful and useful. Uh, but my own methodology was a little uh, different. I went back and tried to understand what happens when the passion of a particular Enneagram type interacts with and ultimately interferes with the expression of a particular instinct. So, for example, um, if we look at a passion of a type, say the passion of type 7 is gluttony. Gluttony for me is, is a kind of unconscious inner hunger, a feeling of never having enough, a feeling like a terror that I'm not going to get what I need. I'm going to somehow emotionally or, or spiritually starve to death if I don't mobilize to go toward what I need. So if, if I take that kind of need to fill myself and I put that into, say, self-preservation, for example, I, I without any regard to these little uh, names and things, what is gluttony and self-preservation? Well, you can't have too much self-pres. You can't have too much comfort. You can't have too much well-being. You can't have too much luxury. These are the sevens who like to get stuff and like to have things and like to shop and like to make sure they've got what they need. And I think it's very simple to understand that way. And for my money, some of the the simple terms, the, the they point to something that may be true about the combination, but not necessarily what's most useful for leveraging some kind of development or awakening out of it. Um, another example would be, uh, so if we, I just use some other types, and I'll use self-preservation as an example. Uh, if I am a five, and then the passion is avarice. So avarice is a kind of withholding of the self, a, a sort of withholding of energy, a, a retreat or a contraction away from contact and engagement. When you put that with self-pres, it's, it's like this kind of hoarding quality of the five. Like, I don't need much, but I need this stuff. And this way of sort of hoarding my energy, my attention, my physical energy. So these are the fives that get tired easily and, and most easily. And most need to sort of contract away from people for their self-pres, for their sense of well-being. Whereas, uh, as an almost opposite, for me, the self-preservation too the two thing is pride, and pride is a passion of feeling beyond personal needs. Um, so here it's like, I don't, uh, I don't need this, but maybe you do. Maybe I can provide this for you. So for me, a self-preservation too, for example, is the one who takes care of someone else's self-preservation needs. And there's certain kinds of twos who do that. Uh, others that don't. So all of these are not meant to be the identity of a person. They're meant to be a core compulsion, that the, the awareness of which can open up a lot of developmental possibilities. I hope that distinction is meaningful. So in each case, we will tend to pick one of these instincts as our top priority, what we obsess about, what we over-focus on in a sense. Um, we're not casual about it. Our, we keep organizing our life around it. And I have commented that our dominant instinct, the instinct we're most preoccupied with, has determined a lot of our life choices. 
we can look back at our life and see it as kind of a, a testament to our, our dominant in, instinctual preference. Um, and the nakedness and directness of that and the obviousness of it would maybe be easy to spot by our friends or loved ones. But I find for whatever reason, people's psychological defenses, their attachment to certain self-concepts, their challenges around seeing what they're really up to tend to be most extreme around this instinctual material. And I think that's because it's so close to the bone. It's so raw in a way. It's so revealing. And it's so connected with our basic survival. So some of our biggest uh, defenses and some of our most active uh, self-deceptions can operate around here. Um, so you could see if your life was really a tribute to security, practicality, comfort, uh, well-being, um, and so forth. Is your life a tribute to energy and creative movement and seeking things out and, and putting yourself at risk in different ways even? Um, is that how you've lived your life? Or is your life more about your sense of connection with other people, with, with, uh, 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 with the needs of others, with service to others, and so forth. It's not that hard, I think, to see, but it's amazing to me, as I said, how, how uh, actively people can fool themselves about it. I, I had uh, years ago uh, in a class a, a man who uh, heard this for the first time, and... Uh, I think he was still a little bit in this idea that the, the sexual attraction instinct was one-on-one -on -one partnership. Uh, and I want to suggest that there are all three of these drives ha are a part of one-on-one -on -one partnership. But in any case, this gentleman was sort of saying, well, he could see that he was sexual or attraction dominant because he had just dreamed of having a, a life partner, as he said, a princess. And he had worked very, very hard. Uh, he was poor, but he, and he knew he couldn't get the princess he wanted if he was poor, so he applied himself. He got to university. He worked very hard at his job. He gathered and saved money. He got, finally bought a beautiful home, and he had some investments and everything. And finally, you know, he was like 48, 49 years old. He was ready. He met his beautiful princess, and he was sexual all along, but he just had to sort of put it in the background to, in order, well, of course, this gentleman has sexual instinct, has attraction, but his whole life was a testament to self-preservation and the belief that he had to take care of those kind of practical things, foundational things, first. Uh, and to just not, to, to hit this from one other angle, the, the whole one-on-one -on -one thing, um, self-pres wants a one-on-one -on -one relationship, but for self-preservation, that partnership looks like a safe, comforting reliable, trustworthy partner that I build a life with. It's about steady, solid, building intimacy, building a home, building a life, that kind of element of a relationship. That's the self-pres part of a one-on-one -on -one relationship. Some people, that's the main thing. Some people, it's not a big part of what they're looking for. The attraction part is the 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 
stimulation, the energy, the the boom of relationship, the intensity and and sense of energy and creatively mixing it up that happens when in a relationship. And so that's kind of different from the other thing, but they're both part of a one-on-one relationship and people like different mixes of this. And then the social, we want a partner that cares for us and we care for them and we want somebody who helps us be who we are in the world. And we want to help our partner be who they are in the world. So we're kind of partners in taking on life, in going after the things that we want. So I'm just suggesting that all three instincts play a role in creating a one-on-one partnership. There are different ingredients that different people will have in different combinations. So the last thing I want to talk about, and then we'll go to our Q&A. I hope you're uh, flowing along with this. It's so interesting when I'm teaching. I don't. I, I'm. I'm getting the sense. I can feel people listening, but I'm always wondering what you're thinking. Um, the uh, the third and uh, element of this is that while we prioritize one instinct, we tend to have one kind of in the middle. It's and there. It's kind of more flexible with the first. Sometimes. The second one moves into the first for a bit, but when things are just going along, it tends to drop back. It can be a support to the first instinct, and also one that we like to play in when we're tired of our dominant obsessive instinct. So it could be a vacation from our dominant instinct. So I think there's kind of a lot of flexibility uh, between the first and the second, but you can see that when all things are equal, there's one that tends to push us along more than the other. But then, and very significantly, there is one instinct or one drive that we tend to give less time and attention to. In more extreme cases, we actually neglect it. Uh, But it just doesn't show up in our radar in the same way. It doesn't mean we're against it necessarily. But it just seems to take time away from what we believe is most important, which is the dominant one. Yet, when we give time and attention to that third instinct, and I've dubbed this uh, the blind spot because we really don't see how important it is at first. When we give it attention, our life works so much better. We feel more balanced. We feel more integrated. We're kind of proud of ourselves. What our blind spot is, we kind of, it isn't like we don't know anything about it, but when we're able to do something in this, we're very proud of ourselves. and We want to tell all our friends. We want credit for doing it. Like maybe if self-preservation is our somewhat neglected instinct, we finally balance our checkbook or we clean up our kitchen or we organize our closet or we, we something practical like that. And we are so proud of ourselves. And we want everybody to know and our friends say, what's the big deal? I do that all the time. But for us, it's a big deal. If we had um, uh, sexual attraction as a blind spot, you know, maybe we uh, we just don't follow our impulses. We're we tend to be very responsible people, very organized people, the ones who hold the world together. We we don't feel we have time or can, the luxury of playing around, and that's what it seems like to us. And so, uh, and yet, when we step out, when we follow our impulses, when we let our creative drive take us to something new and interesting, we really like ourselves so much better, and we want everybody to notice. Huh? 
And the third is the, the social, if, you know, we, that is the one we tend to neglect. And we'll say more about all this over the next few weeks. But if, if we uh, tend to neglect the social or not pay as much attention to it, we're very proud that we called back <laughs> the people who called us, that we, we actually were interested in a conversation, that we went out of our way to do something for somebody else. And, and we feel really proud of that, rightly so, because we're breaking out of our usual patterns and we're developing a part of ourselves that maybe lags behind a little bit. I want to say that nobody is com- entirely clueless about that third instinct. We have some skills there. But let's just say it's the part of our life that needs more loving attention and time and consideration. My sense is that in working with this material, we need to focus on the cultivation of that third instinct to create balance. Because as soon as we do, it takes us the obsessive quality of the dominant relaxes. And it must in order to really give some kind of attention to the third. And we're going to talk about strategies and so forth for doing this. The other thing that I see is that sometimes the motivation for the dealing with that third instinct comes from the one in the middle. That uh, the, the instinct that's just kind of there and kind of more fluid and flexible provides the rationale and the reason why we need to develop the third one. So, for example, a person might be, let's say, their sexual attraction dominant, social in the middle, and self-pres is the the least developed, the the so-called blind spot. Well, uh, my home is okay. It's just, oh my God, I'm going to have company. I want to have people over. Well, guess what gets my place cleaned up and organized? Somebody coming to visit, somebody being there, wanting to make a social connection. So you could, you could think of other examples, right? What I'm going to suggest is as we go forward from this, and I'll, I'll give you some things to talk about in the breakout group and you're going to get your deepening practices. We want to start relaxing our assumptions about all this and start looking in real time where does our attention go? Where does it drop out? What energies tend to take me on wild rides or long obsessive rides? And what are how what tends to get imbalanced when I do that? So I really want to propose that we're working with this again, not just to get a, a, a new descriptor for ourselves but to use it as a method to find greater balance and presence and awareness in our life and to start to come into real compassionate contact with the psychological patterns that are subconsciously running things and making decisions for us and and so forth. And this is, is what the real inner work and the original aim of the Enneagram was all about. So I really look forward to exploring all that with you. But I think I've talked plenty about this, um, and maybe it would be good to start our questions and answers. I'm sure there are some. Great. Okay. So for those who dialed in, if you would, please press 1 to ask a question or make a comment. And for those on the webcast, if you would type your question 
or comment into the message box, we'll get it over to Russ as well. And I do see that Barbara has a hand up. Barbara, if you would, go ahead. You have the mic. Barbara, are you with us? You may be on mute. Yes, I just got that mute on. Okay, let's go ahead and check in with, I'm not sure if it's Mara or, yeah, maybe Mara. 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 Okay, great. Yes. Hi, Mara. Oh, oh, hi, Russ. Uh, I would like to ask you, first of all, when I think of passion, it almost feels like an addiction. So Mm -hmm. I'm a nine, and I have lethargy and self-forgetfulness. So Mm -hmm. how would I go about healing and transforming the lethargy and self-forgetfulness? Vis-a-vis this uh, instinctual uh, material we're looking at, or in general? Uh, well, how would I work to uh, to to not be lethargic and not to be so self-forgetful? I see. Well, I think what we were talking about in the first session, we were talking about the imbalance of the centers. And I think, and if you recall, I don't know if you heard that session, but we talked about how the whole issue with the nine is the disconnect between the energy of the belly center and the other centers, the heart and mind. So that we're either in the heart and mind, we're getting all sorts of cool ideas and creative impulses, but we don't have the power and energy of our body behind us, or we're kind of in our body doing the kind of you know things that we do quite easily and naturally, but we're not as connected with that creative impulse. So I think for me, the whole thing with um, the nine is learning presence with contact and with context, and with content. In other words, I think nines have a great capacity to tune into different qualities of consciousness, and that can be really helpful when you're meditating or being a seeker and so forth, but it doesn't help ultimately with this self-forgetfulness that you're talking about. It's bringing the presence to the patterns, to the content of experience, bringing the grounded life energy into awareness of, of the patterns that are running me. And I think the instinct work can be very helpful that way because it gets so specific. It gets harder to kind of fool oneself into a kind of vague notion of presencing. There are very particular things I can tune into here as we did at the beginning. I think the other thing is that as we get in touch with the energy, it gets bigger. And in, in the nine space, we kind of have a habit of keeping ourselves small uh, in various ways to keep the peace. We've learned this as a survival strategy when we were little kids, and it worked pretty well overall, but it kept us kind of, what do I want to say, marginalized in our own life to the degree that we had to do that. So just seeing that is something intelligent that I learned how to do but recognizing as I come out of that kind of marginalization of myself, as I step into the core of my own energy, it's going to feel big. It's going to feel potentially disruptive. It's going to feel maybe scary sometimes, particularly, as we know, 
the 8 and 9 1 are in the anger triad, there's going to be feelings of anger. But I just want to suggest, when in working on that with someone, presencing that anger just as an energy, instead of our various scary thoughts of what it's going to make us do. Right? People going around smashing things and being violent, that they're not present with their anger, they're acting it out. But as we, we get learn containers to be with our bigness of energy, we start to break through some of these old patterns and structures, and it brings this beautiful lucidity. Because the, the two connecting lines for the nine are to the three and the six. We'll talk about that at the end of the course. And both of those are represent profoundly aware gifts that are really are part of the nine as a whole. So I think it's it's that that as you look at this instinctual work and get more specific about presencing the content and letting these energies come up and creating a, a compassionate holding for them as they do, uh, where you're not feeling apologetic for having them even, I think you're going to find it's easier to remember yourself, as Mr. Kachif said. There'd be less of a need to self-forget. Self-forgetting is a is a defense. It's, it's something, again, we learn to do to survive. And as we work through the, the patterns and touch the things that we were too scared to touch when we were little kids uh, internally, uh, I think that it gets easier and easier to remember ourselves. That's true for everyone, really. The nine holds that space for everyone. It's it's witnessing with the content. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, that's just great. Thank you. You're very welcome. Okay, and from Diane on the webcast, can you elaborate what you mean by giving attention to our less developed instincts? Are you talking about primarily observing ourselves as we are, or are you suggesting that we actively do something to develop that instinct or both? I am an SP1 with social instincts last. What a, what a great question, yeah. I think that the foundation of the work that we do is to observe ourselves as we are, to see the patterns. But, you know, it, it struck me over many, many years of teaching that people kept asking, uh, well, is there anything I can do <laughs> besides just pay attention to myself? A lot of people were frustrated with that idea. And one thing I think we can do is develop new habits around the area of our neglected instinctual zones. Um, one thing I do notice, and I'm very fond of uh, the work of, for instance, Dan Siegel, and a lot of the new discoveries in brain science, uh, it's, it's like presence and self-observation opens up the capacity for rewiring, to, to get out of the ruts in our brain. Presence facilitates us getting out of those ruts. But then if we don't create any new pathways, they tend to reestablish themselves as soon as we're not being as present or awake to ourselves. I think having other kind of pathways or uh, neurological channels, you could say, really opens up the repertoire and actually makes it easier to be present. Um, so I would say that 
these are areas that you actually can engage in new behaviors. Uh, we'll talk about that in each module for each instinct, some of the kinds of things we can do. But uh, a couple principles come to mind. One is we don't have to do it like someone who's compulsive in that area. Like if... if uh, we have uh, if we have a social blind spot or low social, we don't have to go around and, and look like a social two or a, a social seven or something. We get to do it the way it arises through us as we pay attention to that part of us. And there will be a natural way that happens. And there are ways that that will take us out of our comfort zone, no matter what our stack is, no matter what our Enneagram type is. And because of that, it's easy to get discouraged. I really think this is an area where our support of each other and having friends, and particularly if we have friends being sort of uh, coaches for us in, in this area can be super useful. Having a, a friend who is more social, um, talking with them, learning from them, um, can be very, very uh, helpful. We don't have to do it all ourselves. And, and we get to pick how this works for us, how it fits into the real life that we're living. Great. Thank you so much. Let's go with Elena. Elena, you have the mic. Yes, can you hear me? Yes, sure can. Hi, Elena. Great. Great. So this is powerful um, information because I'm beginning to already formulate some... Um, patterns in my mind, I wonder if they, if, if people ever, I mean, I am having, and if people ever have, um, if they connect it with human developmental years. So, for example, I'm looking at my first 14 years, and I was so socially driven. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we moved a lot, and I wanted to be popular. And then 14 to 21, boy, sexual was really um, a big force in my life. And I, you know, and a, a lot of addiction. I I, I could I knew how to categorize myself as a seven because I always said I had the disease of more. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, as soon as I met my husband now, and we've been together for 30 years, which is pretty remarkable, um, boy, I really I went in immediately to, okay, we're going to build a bank account, we're going to build a home, we're going to build a family. And, um, you know, but, but I really see it as three distinct... Um, you know, areas in my life. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I think that we have more fluidity in this than is sometimes taught. And indeed, it would be a sign of some kind of mental illness if we couldn't shift it at all. That wouldn't be a good sign. And 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 as you were saying, different life situations or circumstances arise and instincts come forward. Like, you might not be the most social person in the world, but when you first go to a new school or you go to university or something, you, you've, your social instinct needs to come forward at that point. If you get a new job, your social instinct comes forward. If you're looking for a job, social instinct comes forward. If you're out, uh, if you're single at, and you haven't been single a long time, you may not have thought about attraction, and suddenly you're noticing who and what you're attracted to and what you're not. Uh, if if you get a little scary diagnosis or something uh, from the doctor. You may not have been very self-pres in your life, but suddenly 
you know, you're paying more attention to your health and well-being than you have before, or you, you suddenly there's a, a problem, an economic problem. Well, you're going to start paying attention to money and and practicalities that you didn't need to. So I think that there's two things about this, and they they can coexist in one person. One is that yes. Through the course of life, there are fluctuations and life circumstances draw out different objective needs. And if you're not completely kooky, we respond to those needs. And uh, and rightly so. And different instincts may seem to uh, come out in different ways in different stages of life. That being said, there's still a flavor, a kind of default patterning that exists in people where when all things are equal and there's no particular particular event or situation that's putting pressure on our ego structures, then we will tend to revert back to a certain habitual way of being. Now, the way we express that might be different. Like uh, the way I express my attraction or sexual instinct at age uh, 50-whatever is not the way I did when I was uh, 19. But there's still the energies there, and it provokes certain kinds of behaviors and movements. It might affect my choice of what music I listen to, for example. Or it might affect how I like to eat or when I like to eat or other kinds of things. As we get into some of the specific and incredibly um, varied ways that these instincts can be expressed, I think we'll see that certain themes are there, even as we have these stages of life as you describe it. So I think both can exist in the same person. And again, I'm I'm sort of voting less on nailing ourselves into a particular category than I am on being conscious about parts of life where we're usually not very conscious. Or I could say this way, when we're being most compulsive around our instinctual drives and our Enneagram type, it tends to be when we're least present. So we don't always notice it, but our friends do. And um, I think that, uh, I hope that sort of addresses what you're saying. I think that uh, it's not as cut and dried as, as this material is sometimes presented. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank okay. You. Okay, and from Jan on the webcast, since the instincts are part of the belly triad, do they correlate in characteristics in any way with the eight, nine, and one types? If so, what are the correlations? And if the survival correlates with the first chakra, does the sexual correlate with the second and the third with uh, the social with the third? Well, I would say, um, I'll handle the second part first. Yes, in terms of the chakras, uh, the, yes, the, the self-press correlates with the first, the sexual with the second, which is the sexual center in the chakra system too. Um, and the third with the social, uh, which is again relates to the solar plexus. Whereas, um, I would say, I would not, I would, I would caution us against looking at the three types there along with the instincts. The reason being that the type structure, while we're looking at the three, eight, nine, one as types constantly write some of the issues of the instincts that we could, could address, um, it isn't to say that they are just that. I mean, eight, nine, and one all have 
a particular heart center um, manifestation. In fact, the passion of those types has to do with the suffering in their hearts. The fixation of those three types has to do with a certain stuck quality in their minds. And so you can't reduce a type to just a center. When we put the types in these zones of centers, we're more saying that they're representing a constellation around some of the psychological issues that arise in connection with that center. So I would, uh, while poetically we can kind of fool around and do it, you, you can argue it a lot of different ways depending on how you see the types. But I, I find that um, a correlation that's less useful, at least in my experience. But I do see uh, the, the correlation you pointed to vis-a-vis -vis the chakras is, is, is accurate. Okay, thank you. And let's go with Charlie. Charlie, you have the mic. Hi, Charlie. You might be on mute. If you're talking, Charlie, we're not hearing you. You're right. I'm on mute. That's uh, you think ah, after the conference calls, I'd have that figured out. Um, Russ, I wonder if you could talk about the um, a six and who's a self-preservation uh, and how passion fits into that. Okay, sure. I'd be happy to do that. Um, I think the way some of this gets described in in uh, various Enneagram circles for me was a little confusing. Um, and I, again, went back to basics. And for me, what is the passion or the issue of the six? Well, it's anxiety, angst, fear, you know, talked about different ways. But I just find it beyond just simple anxiety. And it's not simply like being scared because there's, you know, a, a snake in the path. It's, um, it's this, I, I call the passion of the six angst, using the German term, which I th find more accurate in how that sits contextually in 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 the German language, it's closer to what we mean when we're talking about the core of the six. So there's kind of an anguish, a sense of dread, a sense of like a, a real terror at the root of it that if I don't do X, Y, and Z, this is going to all fall to pieces. Well, you put that together with self-pres, I'm the person who worries about self-pres stuff. I'm the person who has anxiety. Are the bills paid? Is this happening? Did we do this? Is this taken care of? Is our company going to stay in business? And 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 are we eating the right thing? Did I eat? It's so the the six the the preoccupation and the kind of worried mind and the angsty quality of the six tends to be around uh, various self-preservation issues. Now, some of my colleagues make distinctions that I I don't quite agree with I see what they're getting at but I don't I don't get it like some people call the six the warm uh, the self-press six the warm six but that sort of suggests that the sexual and social six are not uh, I find them <laughs> perfectly warm and and like any human being sometimes warm and sometimes not so warm but what I do see is this is the the hyper responsible six that wants to participate in and make sure that the basics of life are attended to, taken care of. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'm will, I don't need glory. I don't need 
you know, the narcissistic fanfare. I just want to make sure that the right things happen so that we're all okay. And uh, six will make a lot of sex. It's a way also, I think, sometimes how we try to express love for people is through this combination. So by my kind of worrying and and thinking about and trying to anticipate problems in the self-pressed zone for my loved ones, that's how I try to look after them and, and love them. Does that help? Uh, it sounds very familiar. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Okay, and from Samantha, is it possible for someone and you may have just answered this, is it possible for someone with dominant social instinct who does not enjoy social functions or networking? I'm a type 2, and based on the test, my instinctual stack is social, sexual, SP. I can relate to social in terms of caring for family and connections, but prefer more solitude. Yeah. Well, that's a really important point. and I think that, A, the, the test, I just want to say, I was just talking, uh, teaching with um, Helen Palmer, Dave Daniels, and Jessica yesterday on the shift, and we talked about tests. I think tests are good as pieces of evidence, but I don't use them as the final determinant of anything. If you get certain results with the test, check and see if it corresponds with your experience of yourself. And that's probably why you're asking this question partially. Yes, social types can be introverts. Being social does not mean you want to go out and be on committees and be in parties and be around people all the time. There are many social dominant people who are introverted. But socials understand the necessity of cooperation and they are the people who tend to notice other people. Sometimes, um, self, uh, it, 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 I've known social twos who are introverted because they're so aware of other people and their needs and so responsive to other people's needs that they really need solitude to kind of recharge their batteries because they so quickly go toward um, being aware of people. The other thing with social twos is as a social two, I'm not, you know, caretaking uh, people. That, that's not the particular way the two-ness would show up. It's more like helping people with their social agendas and needs, helping people advance, helping people make connections, helping make the company work, helping my kids find their, their uh, journey and so forth. It's, it's helping others w- find their place in the social uh, fabric that they're involved with. Um, but I, I just would add again that... Uh, one other thing I'd say is social instinct, and we'll talk about this in a few sessions from now, is not merely the impulse to join. Many people think that, and that's not correct in my view. Uh, it is also the in, impulse to not join. Social instinct is the intelligence that lets me know what basket I want to put my eggs in. Where do I want to give my time and energy? What, who do I want to involve myself? And who do I not want to involve myself with? And so it's a sensitivity to what I participate in and what I don't. So, uh, again, to just return to it, yes, socials can be uh, really like their alone time, and many socials I've known do. In fact, some of the people I know who do great contributions in the social sphere, leaders and so forth, 
their alone time is very important to them. So again, we want to break apart some of the kind of cliche ways of looking at some of this and really look a little more closely at how this stuff works in us. So I hope that's helpful. Okay, thank you. Let's go with it's either Gabriel or Gabrielle. Yes, hi. Can you hear me? Hi. Yes, I sure can. Wonderful. Um, when a type has a predominant instinctual drive which conflicts with its patterns, for example, a type 5, which is associated with avarice and isolation, having a social instinct, can simply becoming conscious and accepting of this contradiction lead to greater balance and transformation? Yes, um, I think so. And I think also, it's again, it depends on how we hear or define these words. And in that particular case, particularly how we define or think of social. Most people sort of reject the idea of, quote, socializing. Uh, I've done panels over the years, and uh, both of type and instincts, and I say, what's something you really don't like? And you know what? All nine types don't like small talk. And all three instincts don't like small talk. So I don't know who's doing the small talk, but obviously none of the nine types are the three instincts. <laughs> I, I joke that small talk is a conversation I'm not interested in. It might not be small talk to those people over there. For them, it's very important. And so when I when I example social five, it's about I connect through knowledge, and I contribute through my knowledge. Most fives I know, regardless of their stack of instincts or their prioritization, want to be able to make some sort of contribution with the knowledge and skill that they've acquired. They want it to be useful, and to it's what I feel I can contribute. Also. I like to connect with people through expertise and knowledge. So, you know, if let's say I was into astrophysics, you know, maybe I don't want to sit in a sports bar while people are talking about the latest uh, basketball game or something. However, if there were a group of uh, brilliant experts in the field of astrophysics and we're connecting and talking about our findings, that's social, right? And I would definitely want to be in that conversation. So I think that uh, we, when we start to understand social is how we plug in to the human species, how we get interested in something besides ourself, I think we can start to see how it works with the type. And yes, I think as a five, beginning to look at and understand how despite this avaricious quality and this impulse to disconnect and withdraw, there really is some contribution I have to make. There really is some value that I can bring to the world. I think that's a really important and healing area for Type 5. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, and from John, can you provide an example of a secondary instinct of social helping actualize a hidden attraction instinct. And how does this then take the pressure off the dominant self-preservation instinct? Thank okay. you. Okay, that's <laughs> I'll get the moving targets here. So we got self-pres on the top, social in the middle, and and the sexual attraction is the is the lagging one. Okay, how does the middle help? Well, um 
if I want to engage people and meet people and be have an impact, then my cultivating my charisma, my energy, following that energy, following inspiration really helps me to do that. It helps expand and deepen the sense of my social network and connections. Uh, I become more interesting and I am more interested. Uh, I'm following the, the energy and impulses. And that's going to help. And, and the social is going to give more of a rationale for that in this case than the self-pres is. To the, the self-pres dominant structure, the sexual is the lagging. It feels like uh, irresponsibility, dangerous, wild, you know, this is going to lead, this is going to crash my car. And so this seems like a bad idea. However, as I start to do it and discover the very beautiful and particular ways it comes through me, in ways it actually helps me with my life force, I'm actually more balanced than in my real health and well-being and in how I set my life up in the practical matters that I'm dealing with. Uh, it's more inspiring. It's more enjoyable. Um, and it's just a matter of fact, too, that I, I sense, and there have been scientific studies, that when we're not as aware and, and letting the flow of that life force, that, that energy move through us, it has deleterious effects on our health. Um, we'll talk about that more when we get into it. But I think the motive to connect with people, meet people, open to people, is a lot easier way to go in, in bringing that forward. And if the social is your middle one, that's probably a probably an available channel for you. Oh, great. Thank you. And, Russ, we have a number of people with their hands up, but I also um, want to uh, be mindful of the time. Uh, so I'm wondering um, how you would like to proceed, if it's time for breakouts or... Well, I want to make sure there's time for the breakouts. That seems important. Um, what I'm going to do, I still have a few questions from the first session, and I'm going to try to get to some of these questions. It just takes time to write down the responses, but I do want to honor them, and um, I'm, I'm going to do my best to go through some of the questions you've had and write short answers and get some help with that <laughs> along the way. Um, but I think uh, it's important to have enough time for the breakout, don't you think? Um, mm -hmm. So I, what I want to suggest for the breakout is, um, you know, I've said some things that are probably different than maybe some of what you've read. Uh, I, I'm trying to make some very clear distinctions. But it might be fun for people to just talk a little bit about what they see as their prioritization and if they know their Enneagram type, a little bit about how their Enneagram type is influencing this. Like if they are uh, a three, uh, how is my threeness uh, impacting my my social instinct or what have you? So just, uh, just have a little time to talk about uh, what you're seeing about that. If you've studied the Enneagram before, and I'm sure some of you have, it would be more fun, I think, if you look at new realizations or discoveries you're having rather than the tried and two, true uh, things you've already talked about many times. So let's put it that way. What new is coming to me about 
the way these instincts are operating in me and the way they're working with my type that I, I'd like to explore a little bit with some, some people. It, it's just so helpful to talk about this with people in real time. So I think you'll get value out of that. And if you do that and then do the deepening practices, you're going to have quite a week. Hmm. Great. Thank you so much. And as Russ said, we will go ahead and get you into breakout groups here in just a moment um, so that you do have time to deepen your experience of the material uh, by sharing with others. So I'd like to invite you at this time to press 4 if, on your keypad if you intend to stay on for the breakout groups. And uh, if you're on the webcast, please do call in now if you would like to be part of the breakout groups. And again, your personal PIN is on your course homepage. So uh, that uh, will be the wrap for today. And I just really want to encourage you to stay on for the breakout groups. They're very powerful. And uh, we will get you set up here in just a moment. Let's give people a chance and let's sorry. also remind them that uh, again that we will not be meeting next week. So just to remind everybody of that. Great reminder. Thank you so much. And is there anything else you would like to add be before we move on to breakouts? Just to take your time and uh, and be open to seeing it from some new angles. Even if we've already figured out some of the basic patterns, there are just beautiful ways we can keep seeing new things about it if we're looking at this material freshly. I really recommend beginner's mind, as uh, D.T. Suzuki used to put it. Mm. Great. Thank you so much.